Hi, lovelies. Welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm your host, Valentine. Today, we are releasing a beautiful interview between Vimala Sara, co-founder of 8-Step Recovery and president of BRN, and Carolyn Kajathro, founder of Recovery for the Revolution. If you were at Sober Voices the last weekend, you would have seen Carolyn at the BIPOC panel, as well as leading the final keynote conversation. Carolyn, who uses they-them pronouns, is a queer, non-binary, Afro-Indigenous, neurodivergent human in long-term recovery and believes recovery from a decolonized, anti-oppression lens can point the collective towards liberation. They are breathing fresh life into recovery, and they are a powerhouse of wisdom. I'm really excited to see what comes next for Carolyn and Recovery for the Revolution. To contact Carolyn, you can check out recoveryfortherevolution.com. They offer coaching and advising services, as well as a form to contact them to speak at an event or on a podcast, and are working on offering more community and workshop spaces for the collective. And of course, don't miss our live BRN Academy series the first Sunday of each month. Our guest teacher on March 7th will be Rachel Lewis from Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock. We have Carolyn Cordava from Recovery for the Revolution, and I am mightily, mightily excited uh, for this, this interview. I've been stalking you. <laughs> over the past few days and and there 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 is, there is so much firstly tell me why recovery for the revolution oh <laughs> um i think that the sometimes i can get quite like it's just that name says exactly what this is about like for me when I think about this work, uh, it, it is work about thinking about what does recovery look like in trying to bring about like a revolutionary new way of, of being. Um, and so for me, this that's what this work is about. Like how do people on on paths to recovery get build capacity, have capacity to sort of be in a world that is so hard to be in? And and work towards changing that. That that's great, actually. When you say that, the capacity I think of recovery, recovery capital, which perhaps is a colonial expression, and, and we'll, we'll we'll get onto that. I think the first thing that I want to say is is that our audience is Buddhist, Buddhist, mm-hmm. and people who who are curious. And the common denominator is is that our audience they they're all in recovery. Yeah, and so when I read your work, on one level, it's talking about decolonizing recovery. It's talking about taking the whiteness out of recovery. And yet I read something else which says none, which says none of us is free until we are all free. We are all connected, which is very Buddhist. OK, and so. Who is Recovery Revolution for? Because as I say, at one point, I might think, oh, this is just for big pop people. But then when I read this, it's for everyone. So who is Recovery Revolution for? Yeah, I I think that, that that's been such a that's been such a thing to sit with for me. Um, 
ultimately it is for everyone. It, it's for people who are willing to take this path. Like, and, and I do like that principle of like, none of us is free until we are all free is, it was something that in my recovery journey, like getting sober, you know, I started in, in 12 steps and I didn't find that to be like a present principle there. It was kind of like, okay, just center your individual self and only yourself. And, and until I learned that, like until I got connected with, um, I've been really inspired by the work of um, Radical Dharma, um, you know, until I found other people who were practicing those principles, like I, it was just such a struggle for me. And, and I do know that, I do know that it is, very true that we are all interconnected um and and we need each other to be well to be free and so it is for everybody but on the other side of that and and you know part of my work also reflects on on sort of the principle of like relative reality and ultimate reality which is also a buddhist principle um and and you know in like the ultimate reality like we are all connected we are all just my understanding of this, of course, I am. <laughs> so I just want to say that. And if there's any nuances I'm missing, let me know. But um, my understanding of it has been like, we are all connected. And, and those, these things that seem to separate us, like they, they shouldn't have so much weight. Like, that's true. And I also know from the relative perspective, like, racism is real, homophobia, transphobia, like economic injustice is real. And those are very real barriers that, that, that can prevent that, that can really like induce suffering. And, and in my opinion, make it really challenging to pursue kind of that, that ultimate liberation that we, that we're striving for, you know? I mean, it's interesting that you called it recovery for the revolution, because when I think of the revolution, I think of the turning of the will. Mm. Yeah, that we're turning the will. And actually, in in a way, if I think of 2020, you know, <laughs> in terms of what's happened in 2020, we need recovery for the revolution. And I want to ask, what what brought you to create a recovery program which was recovery for the revolution from your personal journey why do you think we needed a program like yours hmm. well i i feel honored that you're calling it a program cuz it's still in its infancy i started in this this i mean now we're in 2021 which is wild but <laughs> But it started in 2020 and um, in June of 2020, and it's it's still very new. And I have been holding space for people and like creating different workshops, different meeting and gatherings. Um, what's been really beautiful about that and, and why I felt that it needs to exist is, you know, again, going back to sort of that relative reality and, and those things that we experience, like, um, you know, being in 12 steps, um, I've been in those rooms as they've transitioned and gone online. And then now, um, you know, in 12 step rooms, like for so often it's been like, you know, outside issues include like race, gender, sexuality. And so my experience in, in those rooms was that I had to suppress those sides of myself. Right. And I had to almost like fit this, this script that was 
very like individualistic, very kind of within like the ideological framework of that. And so, but but then there was also the struggle, this this struggle of like, how do I honor this experience, this voice, this call to healing that's coming up for me? And going into BIPOC only spaces, like I could see the relief that was coming and the ways in which people were sharing about their experiences in ways that they could not with the white gaze, you know, with white people breathing down their necks, telling them that they can't share their experience. And what's been beautiful about like in like beginning this work um, has been to hold spaces that are also like outside of the framework of whiteness. So to me, whiteness can look like, you know, like, like staying within the rigid framework of the 12 step, like how you share in those rooms or whiteness can look like not moving one's body like at all, like, right. Like just standing still when I know that for my like African and indigenous ancestors, that that's not the case, right? Like healing is so inherently tied with movement. That is one of the greatest wisdoms that we have. Um, Actually, it's interesting you, you say that because uh, we had a, consciousness meeting at the end of a eight-step BIPOC meeting and the whole conversation of um, crosstalk came up and I just said this is cultural right. <laughs> like, like as black people we ain't gonna stay like mum like this it's like we'll say ashe yes <laughs> you know and and how much of how much do we have to be encumbered by uh, I suppose by the 12-step model and I want to ask you, so if there are big pock meetings for 12 steps, so we have big pock meetings for 12 step groups, we have big pock meetings for Buddhist recovery groups, why do we still need recovery for the revolution? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, because the like healing wisdom of of BIPOC needs to be honored. Like it needs to be honored and it needs to be centered. And so that's why with the work, you, like you kind of pointed out in the beginning, it's like, none of us is free until we are all free. But I really would argue that, you know, investing and empowering us to dig in and enact what what is healing for us and what that looks like. Um, and it's not like <laughs> something, um, Oh, this this um, Clorinda Braun, who's been a teacher for me as well, like she she talked about like the paradigm, like whiteness has been the framework for so long. Right. And and how far has it gotten us? Like how well of a society can we say that we have that has been, you know, with such white hegemony? So that's why I think we need that. I think we need a program that centers BIPOC, queer, trans recovery that centers what our healing, what our liberation looks like as people who have been so under the thumb, whose traditions of healing have been so erased and so marginalized that we are like crawling back to them. We are, we are, it is such a recovery process in and of itself to own them and, and center them for ourselves. I'm going to really hear you. And, and I, I'm actually in the process of looking at decolonizing mindfulness mm. 
Mm. And in a way, how do we begin to decolonize mindfulness? And that is that we create a mindfulness program which is created by big pop people. Mm. For big pop, and it can be for white people, but it's big pop people who are creating it. So in a way, answering my own question, yes, I do think there is a need for something like Recovery for the Revolution, which is being developed by big pop people or a big pop person because you will bring something different into it. And so my question is, is that when we as big pop people develop something, what what are the concerns? What are the issues that we need to be aware of? It's it's so like that is so interesting. Um, and there's so many like challenges that come up that I feel like from my gut, right? Like that come from that. Um, when I see with my gut, like my gut can be like the center of like defense almost. And so mm-hmm. thinking about resourcing is one of the things, like making sure that we are like well resourced in our work. Like this work is in its infancy and I I, you know, I feel blessed to be stewarding it. Like I'm, I feel blessed that it's like come to me and, 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 and that it's taken off so quickly and, and I need like financial resourcing and support and thinking about how to do that while also honoring the fact that like economically, like, like BIPOC, queer and trans people have been systemically kept out of recovery and systemically kept out of like healing resources and so so thinking about how to work with like economic redistribution is one of those things that I think about a lot um, in terms of how I can make this work sustainable um, and how to be mindful of you know that that distribution which is such a product of oppression um, and then I think a lot about scarcity is what's coming up like the sense that you know with recovery like there's such a there can be such a fear and such a scarcity of like okay like if we were to drift into new to new areas and to talk about things newly like that it may cut off people from recovery that it may keep people from like getting sober um and healing and and it's just yeah there's there's so much fear there in terms of delving into new territory. And I'm so grateful that you like that you've been out there and, and doing this work and, and naming these things for so long. Um because there is a real fear and, and that fear in the recovery space is challenging. It's been it's taken so much courage to come forth and to name these things. Mm-hmm. Um in fact I'd say that in a way that you call me into to action because if I think that I developed a, a recovery program 15 years ago and I developed it out of my own recovery because I recovered in the rooms of meditation in the rooms of Buddhism and so when I was putting it together I didn't really have this black lens and yeah. social justice lens and and so I mean even just recently it's like having black only meetings although that was my hope my hope was is that 
people of color, black indigenous people of color would be attracted to the program because it it's founded by a black person and a white queer person. Yeah. yeah. So th- there was that hope. And in a way, 2020 has really pushed that along. And people like you are bringing me into account of thinking, oh, um, how much of the program that I have needs to be decolonized mm-hmm. or how much of it is 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 white centered but one of the things I was really curious about was you looked at the etymology of recovery mm-hmm. and you know when you know to get back to take back and then I said oh Sankofa and then the next minute it's like I hear you mentioned Sankofa and for me, I think Sankofa is really important because it isn't about just um, returning to go back and fetch what you forgot, what we, what we forgot. Because in, in a way, I think when you talk about uh, needing money, needing that whole scarcity, we also need our, uh, what would we call it, historical acumen. I mean, the reason why we have to return to these places, it's because we fled. We couldn't take what was needed with us. We couldn't take our medicines. We couldn't take our ways. We couldn't even keep them. I think, I suppose what I'm asking you is, is that here we are in 2021 Mm -hmm. and you are at the beginning of developing a recovery program where at the heart of it is social justice. Also at the heart of it is it being trauma informed and at the heart of it is uh, big pot black indigenous people of colour. What needs to be in that program? yeah well what comes up for me is like like guidance and support to come home to ourselves that's what came up and and that that means so many things right like um and i talk about in in that webinar um intro to decolonized recovery like coming home to ourselves like it does mean and i you know buddhism like there's so much of centering of that with meditation and like coming and feeling sensations and i'm so like so grateful for that framework um but it's like coming home to the self and and so deeply like so deeply not just like this body and also like all of the when i think about decolonization like there's so much about understanding like that intergenerational impact of that you know um when i think about the um i remember the first uh talk i heard of yours was like you were talking about stinking thinking when i learned that like my stinking thinking was like um like so much when i was in my drinking was like seeking approval from like white men right and and that's something that's been done for so many generations in my lineage like that's that's how we coped with Spanish colonization. Um, and, and, and thinking about that and thinking about the ways in which like our approaches are so informed by that, the ways in which we're viewing life is so informed by kind of the, that colonization, um, that history. So it's like coming home to that, coming home to how that shapes, how- How do we, how, how do we hmm. help 
big pot people come home to the body? How do we how do we help big pot people come in relationship to the breath when even a breath has become a political act in 2020? If we think of George Floyd or even before that, Eric Garner saying, I can't breathe. When we think of COVID-19, yeah. who, who it's affecting mainly in places like, like the States. So how, how, do we, how do we teach people to come back home to the body when, as you say, because of this epigenetic, epi, epigenetic trauma, this intergenerational trauma, all sense doors have been closed down. People have left, left the body. Yes. Yes, they have. And it's, it's, it's like one of the greatest griefs to see that, right? And to see how that impacts people with like addiction and, and, oh, and, and that's where the tie with social justice is too. It's like, like, there's both like how, like creating the space enough that people can feel like they can come to and they can see other people and where they can perhaps take a breath. And, and, and it's gradual, I feel like, for BIPOC. Like, it, it is gradual to maybe even feel like, you know, that I, something that runs in my family is the need to be doing all of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So what if I can just bring it down to, like, doing while being in the space? And then what can it look like? It just has to be so gradual, I think, for us. Because there's there's so much particularly in our traumas right in the fleeing you know from like slavery in in the fleeing from colonization that that there's so much like fight and flight in us that i i think it needs to be gradual and i think that it it's not only like there have to be multiple ways we have to meet people where they're at that's really where it is and then what came up for me when you asked that was and I really think about it, but like, like giving people more economic security, like that's a big part of it too, because like, you know, if we look at the history of slavery, like the commodification of our bodies, right. Mm -hmm. And then we are like living under capitalism, which is telling us that we have to like work all of these jobs in order to survive. And we know the implication of that, like that is epigenetic as well. <sighs> like, Economic security, I know for me, has been a big factor in, and it's such a privilege. And when I reflect on my own lineage, it's like having a bit of economic security in this manifestation of this lineage has made the difference in being able to heal. And I just, like, when I think of, like, reparations, when I think of, like, redistribution, I know that that's such a big part of it, like, giving people ease. And, and I know that that can be challenging, but that's, you know, when I think of MLK, when I think of Malcolm X, like that, that, that's something they talked about, the need for that redistribution, that need for people to have ease. And so there's the external, and then there's mm -hmm. the like, how do we deal with people's trauma responses on an individual basis and meet them where they're at to begin to ground? Hat, thank you for that. That's great. And I think the question that, that comes to me is, how do we how do we attract the big pot community into the rooms of recovery? Because we know in the Hispanic communities, Latinx, in the African descent communities, in the in the Asian communities, it's 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 taboo. It, at least in the indigenous communities, we are aware of 
of addiction and there's obviously there still are their issues around colonialism and it's like we know that actually it's very still very difficult for people to in our communities and to come out and say I have an issue I have a problem how will your program attract people Mm. yeah I think like (laughs) and that there's so many there's so much to that what came up just now was like telling like more stories like more stories people like speaking from the heart about these experiences and getting them out there right um I think that that's been so when I was first getting sober and, you know, starting in 12 step, like I was looking it up on the internet. I was like, oh, like, <laughs> like, you know, like people of color, black people in AA, like, and, and um, looking that up and, and it was just so sparse. Right. But to see one, to see more of us, I think is everything. And to have our experiences like freely told, that's important. And that's again, like kind of going back to like 12 step framework, like, when I, I remember reading this black and AA pamphlet and I was like, okay, but like, they're talking about like the social disparities that came with that. And then suddenly they get sober and everything's okay. And that never resonated for me. I, I want people to talk about the real struggles of like, how, how do you live sober in recovery um, with all of these identities, with all of these, these, these pressures uh that's what I want to hear and so I think more of that and more of that out loud is necessary and then uh, I think just like oh let's have a let's have a conversation there's a part of me in my head which is just saying let let let's kind of forget the interview format and just go into a a conversation and you might want to ask me a question too let's kind of just okay (laughs) I love that yeah no because I'm I'm I guess I'm curious like how have you thought about this because what was coming up for me before that was just thinking about like intergenerational access to wellness and and I know that like like different generations also think about wellness really differently and have had access to it really differently. Like I know that that's so different for my parents' generation in terms of feeling like they just had to like set everything aside with their traumas and just try and just drive for like the opportunities that have emerged like post civil rights era, you know, like, so I, I, how have you sat with this? (laughs) I mean, I think what's, what's really interesting is, is that, we're having a generation of BIPOC therapists. Mm. Once upon a time, therapy was for the white person. Right. And there, there is a plethora of Black, Indigenous, people of colour therapists out there, which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, because, you know, for somebody to go into therapy and to, to be with a white person, and, and it can work. Right. I mean, it, well, I, had, I had a white, in fact, I had a white male Buddhist therapist and he was brilliant, but it was because he was a Buddhist. Mm. It was because he was a Buddhist. There was something um, about that. So I think 
there there is so so in a way it's like how we can begin to work together so we've got these black indigenous people of color therapists and then we've got more and more of us coming into recovery but one of the things that i've been really exploring and have been wanting to write a new book on mm -hmm. recovery and with a social justice element to it and mindfulness element to it and uh, obviously I get distracted I'm mean, just finishing off I'm just finishing off a book at at, at the moment um, because there's a teaching and it's arguable where the teaching comes from some people say it comes from the Latinx Hispanic culture but sometimes it says it's from the African culture but we know it comes from the, the black indigenous people of color culture and I don't know whether you know this teaching but for me that's the place for us to begin, I think, in terms of recovery for Black Indigenous uh, people of colour. It's the, they have a, four questions and it said that when, um, when somebody was mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally sick, they would be taken to the shaman. Mm -hmm. In our cultures, we have the shaman. Do you know this teaching? I do. Yeah. <laughs> And so this is, this is, to me, I think needs to be at the heart of uh, a recovery program because it's so much, you know, when did you start, when did you stop singing, you know? I mean, it's such a, it just resonates whenever I have to give this teaching to, to big, even white people or whatever, but I think just people just seeing them really resonate with that. And, and in a way it, it, it's, it doesn't have to be on this literal level. Because when did we stop singing? I, you know, even in the womb, it, it's a bit like when the child coming out and 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 the parent being so sad because the child is so dark. And no, the darker you are, the more the struggle you're going to have in the world. Yeah. You know? Um. And and that when did you stop dancing? You know, which again, this 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 play this this when did we lose that play and it's like when when your parents sit down and give you the talk you know you're vulnerable I don't know whether you're going to come home at night you know on the streets I mean I do family therapy I just did family therapy where where a mother is just really really struggling doesn't mm -hmm. want doesn't want the boys out later than a particular time because of just how vulnerable they are you know that's when you stop dancing, when you lose play, you know. When did you stop being enchanted by your own story? Well, all of us, you know, I mean, our pet talk about intergenerational trauma. Right? I mean, it's like, how far do we go back? You know, I just watched Roots recently and thinking how many generations we have to go back that when we can begin to be enchanted by our own story. And then that of like, uh, when did you stop? dwelling in the sweet territory of silence you know and so for me I bring the mindfulness in it because I see the Buddha as a shaman as well and think well when did you stop breathing you know which is which is of resonance so for me I think that it's a very it's a very fertile time and I think it's it's that younger generation you you this generation your younger generation than me where at the heart of things is is looking through the lens of social justice. I mean, I very much look through the lens of trauma-informed, but social justice gives it a different nuance. Yes, and they're all connected. Like, they, they all are, you know? Like, that, that trauma keeps us in the state of, of keeping things as they are. It, it upholds the systems. And, 
it also keeps us from imagining. I mean, I love all of those questions, but it keeps us from imagining more for ourselves, you know, like it keeps us in survival. It keeps us under the thumb of these things. Um, yeah. And, and moving through that trauma is, is what is freeing is where we can move and dance and in moving and dancing, like imagine more for ourselves. I think about this a lot with queer ancestors as well. Like I think a lot about the joy and pleasure, um, queer black ancestors, like, like Marsha P. Johnson, like I, I just, I'm just imagining it, you know, like, like joy, freedom, ability to love. Like that is, that's, yeah, they imagined pleasure for us before, like, and that pleasure bore a movement, you know, like pleasure, freedom, joy, freedom of expression, being oneself, like, ah. Uh. And that, that's a real, real challenge because having that joy and the freedom to be oneself, I, I where I live, I think I, I can express myself, but there's certain places as a black person, I don't have that joy and freedom. And there's certain places as a black queer person in black people of color, indigenous communities, I don't have the freedom to be able to, to self-express. And why? Because colonizers, if, we, if, we, if, if you go to the continent of Africa, they still have laws against gender, against uh, homosexuality, which come from the British. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't even come from which come from the British. You can still be stoned to death. Cape comes from the British. I know it's one of the the biggest griefs for me. Is that like is the fact that like gender queerness and like gender diversity was so squashed under colonization, but it existed before. Mm. Like it was widely acknowledged and and existed in so many different societies and. And so that's part of it too, you know, like that is a part of that. And that's a grief that I do have a lot in BIPOC community um, that isn't queer as well. Like it's, it's, it's that erasure. And I'm like, oh, you know, like. Which is why I say that recovery has to be more or, or addictive behaviors has to be more than the, the substances of, you know, if, if we go to the diagnostic, the DSM manual, it's, it's just alcohol. It's just, drugs and they've just introduced gambling and and if we are to open up the aperture and think of how can we as big pop people come into recovery then part of our recovery we have to come into recovery from from racism why do why do we have these addictive behaviors i, I don't know whether you've heard me talk about the codependency of racism yes yeah. yes yeah. yes yeah yeah. Oh, that one. That one is that <laughs> I had a big uh, awakening call to action with that in 2020. Uh, because for me, uh, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white area. I've been in so many white institutions. And so there was so much and this was such a like, cause of, of coping through like, a, through substances, through addictions for me. Um was kind of like suppressing myself for whiteness, you know, like it was that self-protection by, you know, not being like, not being authentic, not being real with how I felt, just, just playing along with whatever made white people comfortable. And I did that into my recovery as well, you know, being in 12-step programs, 
And it, that was such a attention for me because I knew that that's what needed healing, what needed recovery. And then this year with all of the spaces going online and with like no longer kind of needing to, or rather like getting the opportunity to see that I didn't need to do that anymore, that I didn't need to play into codependency with whiteness to quote unquote, like survive. Who the amount of freedom, the intergenerational decolonial amount of freedom that came from divesting from whiteness in my life, from playing out those dynamics where I suppress myself to make white people okay. Like so much freedom. And I'm also just grateful for how many of us like in 2020 were like, okay, you know what? Like no more, no more of that. We are going to fill ourselves up. We are going to show that we are like worthy of picking up all the space and not play into this codependent dynamic. You've got some excellent quotes. One of the quotes I love is, being in recovery frees me to heal my ancestral lineage. And I just wondered if you would unpack that for me. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, there's so much there. There's so much, you know, um, everything from, again, like in when I was in, you know, my addiction, like so much of that you know, so much was seeking sexual validation um, from white men in order to kind of like move through this queerness. And like, and because that, that, that was what historically for 500 years in my lineage, like that's what has been like upwardly mobile because that's how the Spanish did things, you know, and, and, and what would like protect. Um, and so I was playing that out. Um, and also too, like not having agency, not having like pleasure in my life. Like you said, like, when did you stop dancing? And uh, so there's been so much for me in terms of like reclaiming pleasure, like, like desire, queerness, embodying myself as like a non-binary being like that for me is so healing when there's so much, there's been so much like patriarchy, machismo in my lineage as well, you know? Um, so, and then for me, there's also this element of being like mixed race. There's this element of being like of descendant of the Tainos, like the first indigenous people to encounter the colonizer. Um, and that's been so suppressed in, um, you know, Dominican history. It's been like, oh no, they didn't exist. They didn't make it. But that's all to sort of suppress the indigeneity to, you know, give up the, the autonomy and sovereignty over the land that is our island. Um, and then there's there's my blackness, there's my African identity and, and the ways in which that that especially is so tied to substances for me. When I look at my grandfather, who I can feel ancestrally, he is one of my biggest proponents of my sobriety. Um, you know, he actively fought against uh, the fascist dictator that we had in the Dominican Republic. Um, Trujillo. And he also, while doing that, had all these substance issues. And so, and, and all of this grief, like all the grief around being a black man in like uh, under a regime that was trying to like whiten the race. Like that's, that's so heavy, you know, that is so heavy and something that is so beautiful to like reclaim and heal um, in this lifetime is just, it's, it's, it's such a gift to just live so freely and to not be stuck under like the cycles of like these 
colonizer thinking of self-suppression, of not being worthy of freedom and pleasure. Um, and just to be like, I'm going to live fully and so will others. I, I want that for everyone. That is so healing. And I'm, I'm just grateful that, you know, it's taken like over 500 years for this lineage, but I'm so grateful um, for all of the, the support and the ability to get here. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that was very um, beautiful to listen to. And I was just, it just made me think about what we in, in internalize. And as you asked me about my own recovery, I, I, I mean, I knew that I couldn't go into the rooms of 12 steps when I, which would have been 25 years ago, trying to go into the rooms of 12 steps. And because there was, it, it freaked me out. Because it, I mean, back in the day, it was predominantly men, predominantly white men. So it's well, it is. Don't yeah. that way. Yeah. So it, 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 yeah. And and what was it? What 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 was it? I think um, it, I, it was just so it was just so foreign to me. And I'm thinking, why is it so foreign to me? Because I was raised by white people, so there would have been something familiar. But it was very foreign to me um and in a way when I when I look at your work and you talk about not centering the white voice what does that mean when I look at that it, it's not just about not having white people taking up the space but how do we begin to center that big pop voice in the field of recovery and this is one of the ways of doing it you know it's like saying we are here you know it's like we're not going to put up anymore with you saying when we come into rooms and talk about racism outside issue <laughs> outside issue <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna do that anymore it's like you know outside issue no cross talk <laughs> it's so true it's so this has been so lovely like it's just so lovely to and this is the the healing stuff right like when there's enough space, when our bodies feel comfortable enough, like what are, what's the, what are we capable of? Like, what can we, what can we really get to the heart of, you know? I mean, in a way it's, I, I see that you're influenced a bit by Bruce Alexander, which yeah. I, I like his work too. And, and it makes me think, you know, he took one of the things he talks about the recovery cafes, having, having, having recovery cafes and, and what could that look like in the big pop community? It doesn't have to be, a cafe, but these recovery spaces for big pop people. Yes. Oh, yes. So <laughs> um, I'm laughing because I, um, so, you know, I, I celebrate my sober anniversary tomorrow. And um, this weekend, I'm going to have like a sober drag dance party. And I'm just thinking about that, right? Like for me, that is the epitome of like my cutie BIPOC, like, juiciness you know like that's the epitome of that because I'm celebrating like this like thick Dominican body that I have <laughs> and and doing that in space like I I've gained so much pleasure being um in like the queer trans BIPOC community here in the DC area and and the ways in which like we celebrate ourselves but then there's the alcohol and then yeah so so it's just 
I love it. I love thinking about what we could do. Like, um, like uh, I had a recovery meeting where we started off, it was for the election and we started off dancing and people were like, oh, like bad bunny and recovery. Like, what? I never imagined that, you know, or this other one that I opened in ceremony for Indigenous Peoples Day. Like, it's just, there's so much potential. There's so much creativity. Uh, cafes, like, like cookouts, like spaces that we want to be in, you know, I, I think that that um, like getting sober in 12 step, like when I think about what was most beneficial for me for that, it was it was community. And when I talk with other BIPOC, like that's why there's often such a marriage to those programs, because we know the importance of community. Like We know that that is how we survive. And, and the other thing I think we could take from the 12-step model is telling stories. Yes. Yeah, the art of telling stories because in all cultures resonate with the art of telling stories and and we come from that oral tradition. I think the two things is community and telling telling stories. But I'm 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 curious, I mean, what brought you to recovery? I mean, how how many years ago was it? What what brought you into the rooms? <sighs> So it was three years ago, um, which is cool. Um, it's just so cool and healing um, to, to, to be on this journey. Um, I think for me, kind of what, what ended up bringing me there was honestly like it, it, it was such a like challenging thing to like get, get down to um, because, you know, when I would, it was mostly drinking for me. I didn't really engage in other substances because I was I was afraid for like the color of my skin and the the potential for like law and the glorious prison industrial complex. Like that was very real. My one touch with marijuana, that's what I was worried about the whole time. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, yeah, but like I, I mostly just like drank on the weekends, like and blacking out, of course. But you know, like there was like this, in, like increasing, like because I, like I named for me, like the drinking was like this pattern of like drinking, trying to seek out sexual validation, that happening and feeling terrible, or that not happening and being like, I am undesirable the world is racist, I am ugly, you know, like all of that beautiful, beautiful feeling. Um, and I mean that sarcastically, <laughs> in case that wasn't apparent in my voice. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know, when I kind of like, when things kind of ended for me, like uh, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, I just kind of came to realize like, how much I had harmed myself and other people in my process of um of being in addiction and i i just thought that i was like irredeemable unworthy of like love connection like that wasn't going to happen for me with with all of that i had done and uh i started in the rooms of sex and love addicts for like a hot minute and then somebody there brought me into aa and yeah i and i i it just it was very random like it wasn't like intentionally sought out i didn't think that i had problems with drinking or anything and so it it kind of took a while to like like be like okay you know maybe this is a good thing i'm you know i got sober at 23 so i was very i was pretty young um but i i stopped because again that grandfather ancestor 
I knew how things had been for him. I knew that this was a thing pretty much across my lineage. Uh, and, and so I just thought, you know, like perhaps I should quit while I'm ahead, which is to say something because there was so much hurt that I had caused myself, like truly, you know. Um, but I also knew it could get worse. And, and so that kind of stopped it for me. And how was it for you in terms of your community when you went into recovery? I mean, I imagine you would have had a social network. How, how was it for you? Oh, oh. <laughs> well, you know, in my first AA meeting, I remember being shocked by how white it was. Like I, I mm. like it was just, it was so white. Like the speaker was black, but everybody else was white. Mm. But they were young, and so mm. I was like, okay, that that's interesting, and they do seem happy, and mm. that's that's cool, and that was a lot of it for me. Like there was a kind of like my survival instinct of like, mm. okay, there's a resource here. It's mm. it's being kind of gatekept by white people. Like I guess mm. we suppress ourselves some more, even though mm. when I came in that room, like there was this intuitive part of me that knew, like I don't know if this is going to work either because. I know on some level that this is this is one of the issues that I need to heal from, like my relationship with whiteness, you know. Um, and so there's definitely been the benefit of being in community with like young and a lot of queer sober people in the DC area. But then on the other hand, you know, being being told to like suppress my experiences, that my experiences as like, you know, a, a black indigenous person of color, like that they outside issues of course and and that the traumas that were coming up for me that they you know that that was just me finding an excuse to drink <sighs> all of that and and just the the grief of and the the isolation and the loneliness of just how much was coming up for me and just having relatively like no one and, and also the difficulty too with the few other people of color that that would be in the rooms with me like not not also like understanding or receiving like what I was saying. It was just kind of like, okay, like that's a thing. Just put it aside, continue to like take your recovery and go. Um, yeah. And that's especially when that principle of like, none of us is free until we're all free really came up for me because I'm like, but how can I ignore the fact that like, because of things like the language in, in the books, because of like even the preamble, um, which says men and women and not people like, and, and God, <laughs> I'm like, and I, and I actively worked, I, you know, gained positions in the system to try to change the things. Like I just really encountered the ways in which almost at every turn, like the, the system would rather like uphold itself and its whiteness than to, consider all of the people, people of color, queer and trans people who would benefit from just some changes, you know, like preserving that whiteness. Um, well, what, what, what did your friends think about you going into recovery, the friends who you would have hung out with and partied with? What did they think? I, yeah, I, so some friends were very supportive. They were like, oh, mm -hmm. this is great, which is a blessing. Mm -hmm. um, some of them. Some of them were like, but that's exactly like how you drank is how I drank, you know, like your relationship with sex was my relationship with sex. Like what's what, you know, 
Um, and there were some people who, yeah, just kind of disavowed recovery overall, had had like baggage with recovery and, and there was isolation there. <laughs> and then there was isolation in the recovery community as well, because I was speaking like even at that early point, like naming the thing. So a lot of isolation in the experience. Okay. I'm just, uh, aware of time and okay. taking out your precious time but I do have a couple more questions you might have something you want to ask me too but I'm curious what what platform is it that you use to bring your community together I know Instagram is is a very big big one and I know that you've got almost 3,000 followers on Instagram already um, but how do you bring your community together yes so as of right now, it's been launching um, meetings, groups online on Instagram. Um, if folks want to stay in the know, I definitely recommend getting on my email list. Uh, moving forward, I'll be doing newsletters and I'll be like, if folks are on my newsletter, they'll find out about that sober dance party. You know, like uh, that's what I would recommend. And what I'm working on is launching a virtual online community where there will be more depth. There will be more community building for folks who are willing to engage with the social justice, the decolonizing, the trauma element in recovery. So I guess get on my get on my newsletter. You can if you go to my what's your email? What's yes. your email? Yes, get on my Instagram, go to the link in my bio, and um, from there you'll be able to sign up. Okay. Tell us what your email address is. Yes, yeah, so it's info at recoveryfortherevolution.com. Okay, very simple. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to, to share with our listeners? Actually, there's something that I would like to, yeah. to ask, actually. What happens at a meeting? Yes. Uh, I mean, I intuiting kind of what, what the feeling is. Like, I, it's garnering kind of consent from the community about what our needs are. So the, the structure is open to kind of what people need. It can be a reflection on a writing it can be it can start off as dancing as movement um it can start off as sharing as journaling like it is they are it's open and it's a lot of it is driven by community need so and and do you know have any kind of tracking do you know how many people are recovering through through the rooms of recovery for the revolution um, I know that we've had at least 60 folks consistently attending. So it's been, mm. it's been pretty lovely. Mm. It's been lovely to see and lovely to see mm. what, what that's looked like mm. in such a short period of time. Well, Carolyn, I mean, I want to just say a big up to your three years tomorrow, celebrating three years for your sober anniversary and as I kind of big you up and just say yeah that's dope as we say <laughs> that's dope <laughs> uh, it, it's uh your 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 program is it abstinence harm reduction is uh, is it non-dual is it dualistic ah <laughs> so I, it's interesting because abstinence, I'm like, you know, abstinence is a form of harm reduction. So I think it's it's more spacious. Like it is spacious to 
the different forms that that may take. And that's a beautiful thing um, to see that people coming in from different spaces. Yeah, I agree with you when you say that abstinence is a form of harm reduction, because I just think it's like sometimes people say they came into the to the rooms when I say the rooms are 12 steps and they just stopped. But I just think, yeah, but you had harm reduction before that to get to the place of abstinence. Yeah, so, yeah, it's 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 on a spectrum. Yeah. So final words over to you, Carolyn. Hmm. I just, yeah, I just want to encourage, especially any BIPOC, queer trans people who are listening, like, we need you. Um, we need you in terms of creating what recovery can look like. And so definitely want to invite you to, to check out my work. Thank you for investing in me, Belisara's work as well. Um, and yeah, please reach out. Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the academy free resources on our website and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace.